Bibles now, if you would, please, and if you'll open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. How many of you have a Bible tonight? Oh, good, good, because we're going to do a lot of reading of Scripture this evening through the message. So uh, please keep your Bible open. We want to look at Ephesians, chapter 4. And in our study tonight, we are uh, come to a trilogy of very powerful verses. Now, here in these verses, we find the very basis of church doctrine And the entirety of what we believe about the church can be summed up in these three verses that we're going to read. Although I'm not going to preach from all three of those verses tonight. We will over the next uh, three weeks. But in the book of Ephesians, we find some very basic truths. But we also find some things that are so profound and they're so deep that theologians have struggled and argued for centuries over what these deeper meanings are. And as we reach these next three verses that we want to talk about tonight, uh, the kind of statements that are made here are those kinds of statements. They are very profound. And what you need to do is pray for a better preacher. Because I feel... Thank you. I feel so inadequate to tackle some of the things that we're going to talk about here. But uh, these are important truths, and we'll do our best to, in the time that we have, to talk about some very special things. Every systematic theology that I've ever read always begins in one of two ways. Either it begins with the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, or it begins with the being of God. I mean, almost without exception, that's the way a systematic theology will begin. And the interesting thing about the way that they start when they, when they begin with the discussion of God, they always start with God the Father, then they move on to God the Son, and then they talk about God the Holy Spirit. Well, what we have in these scriptures tonight, uh, Paul is talking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but he moves from one to the other in reverse order. It's not the way that you normally see it in Scripture. And you might wonder, why is it that Paul takes such an approach? And why are we going backwards as we talk about the Trinity? Well, Paul is moving from one area to another and showing that we have salvation. uh, We have salvation, we have a church, and everything that we are, what we are, comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is the result of Holy Spirit activity. But the Holy Spirit would never have come into the world to empower the church, and he never would have come to dwell in the hearts of Christians if Jesus Christ had not come into the world, given his life, gone to the cross, and had been resurrected from the grave and ascended back into heaven. And then, of course, Jesus would never have come if it weren't for the fact that God so loved the world. God the Father so loved the world. So what Paul is teaching us here is the presence of the Holy Spirit who leads us to the Son who in turn brings us to the Father. You may remember a few weeks ago, maybe, maybe a little longer than that, maybe a few uh, month or two ago, I preached on the, how the, the most important thing in salvation, or what the purpose of salvation is to bring us to the Father. I mean, that's where we're going to end up. And so that's the approach that Paul takes. He goes from the Holy Spirit to the Son to the Father. So this evening, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read just three verses, beginning with verse number 4. Ephesians 4, verse number 4. And Paul writes, There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your Word tonight and how important these verses are and how inadequate we are to explain them. Lord, I just pray that you might help me as I preach the message tonight, as we speak particularly this evening about the Holy Spirit, 
And Lord, just speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This evening we're going to concentrate on the first of this trilogy of verses, and that's verse number four. And the subject of my sermon tonight is the one and only Spirit. And I suppose perhaps the most misunderstood person of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. Who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit works is a very controversial issue today. And I'm going to talk about a little bit about that tonight. And if you're not able to learn anything new from what I'm going to say, then I surely hope that this will strengthen you in your convictions about the Holy Spirit. So this evening, first of all, I want to begin by talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. And we notice in our text that Paul says there is one spirit and the one spirit is one spirit simply because he is a person. You see, when you talk about a person, you may refer to that person as an individual. And you understand that a person uh, as an individual is an indivisible person. Uh, A person uh, is, is singular. He's one entity. Bancroft's elemental theology states, personality may be said to exist where there is found united in a single combination, intelligence, emotion, volition, or self-consciousness and self-determination. And I think that those adjectives very clearly describe for us the Holy Spirit. And so when we say that the Holy Spirit is a person, we do not believe like many people do that the Holy Spirit is simply an influence that's in the world. No, we believe the Holy Spirit is a person. He's part of the Godhead. He's the third person of the Trinity. So he's not impersonal. He's a person. Now, it's very important for us to understand that whenever the Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit, it always groups him inseparably with the Father and with the Son. And really, we don't have to look any further into the Scriptures than what we've just read tonight to understand that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one God, co-equal and co-existent. But this is not the only place in Scripture where we see these kinds of truths taught. The Bible teaches us over and over again that there is this inseparable relationship in the Godhead. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, "...the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all." Amen. John wrote in 1 John 5, verse 7, "...for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one." And so that tells us if God is a person, if Jesus is a person, and we believe that they are, then we also have to say that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, I want to point out to you two reasons why Paul uses the word one when he references the Holy Spirit. And the first reason is because there are many spirits. Now, you'll notice on your listening sheet tonight that uh, I put the word spirits in the lowercase. Usually, when I'm making these outlines, I, I put the main words in uppercase, but there's no way that I could actually convey the meaning of this point unless we actually put the word spirit in lowercase. And that's because there are many spirits with a little s in the world. There are many spirits. Now, of course, Satan himself is a spirit. All of the demonic angels that followed Satan, all of those are spirit beings. The holy elect angels of God are also spirit beings. But there's none of these that rise to the level of the one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. He is unique. He's the only one that's like that. Now, all of these other spirits are created beings. But as I said just a moment ago, the Holy Spirit of God is eternally coexistent with God the Father and God the Son. And then I might also add to that that Satan and his demons are conflicting spirits. 
I mean, they work in many different ways. They'll try every conceivable avenue that they can to deceive you. Satan will try every method that he can possibly come up with to try to to ruin your Christian life. And so he works in a diversity of ways. And many times people are confused about whether the spirit that's working is actually God's spirit or is it a spirit that came from the devil. But one thing that we know about the Holy Spirit, he is one spirit. One spirit and only one spirit. Now, as we think about that, then we can say that um, the Holy Spirit's work is singular. And what I mean by that is that he's working the same work in all of us. You see, you never have to wonder whether another Christian has the same spirit that you have because the same spirit always works exactly the same way. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to produce in us the unity of the faith. And so when we have this one spirit working in us, the one and only spirit, that's when the church can be unified, just as we talked about last week. Now, over the years, I I have heard the testimony of perhaps hundreds and hundreds of Christians, and it doesn't make any difference whether you're a Baptist, you're a Methodist, Presbyterian, doesn't make any difference. It's the same Holy Spirit that works in all of us. And the Holy Spirit works in exactly the same way. Now, we might differ in our backgrounds, and we might be quite different in that way, But I have never met a person yet that I knew was a child of God who was a Christian that I asked them about whether they were saved and I explained to them perhaps how I believe that a person gets saved. I have never heard a true Christian say, well, I got saved in a different way. I've never heard anybody say that because it's the one spirit who always works in us in exactly the same way. Now, if you do very much reading on this subject, you'll come across sometime or another uh, a story that relates this very well. Now, I actually have it tonight in a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce, and uh, I, it, it's, it's just the best for me just to read it to you because he, he says it so well uh, to give you the, the idea of why we say there's only one spirit and the conversion experience is exactly the same in every person. So, so listen for just a moment. He says, John T. McNeil, a great Scottish preacher and evangelist, was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for two years in the 1920s. He used to imagine a conversation that might have taken place between the man who had been born blind, whose story is told in John 9, and the other blind man who was healed by Jesus, whose story is told in Mark 8. The difference between the two stories is that in John 9, Jesus healed the blind man by spitting on the ground and making clay, which he used to anoint the man's eyes. This did not happen in the case of the man whose story is told in Mark. McNeil imagined these two getting together to discuss how Jesus healed them. The man who had been healed without the spittle would tell his story, and the man who had been healed with the spittle would tell his. He would say to the other, But you left out the part about Jesus spitting in the dust and making clay and placing the clay upon your eyes. I don't know anything about that, the first would reply. The man from John would answer, Well, it has to be that way, because that's the way Jesus gives sight to people. You must have forgotten it. He spit on the ground, he made clay, he put it on your eyes, and he sent you to wash in the pool of Siloam. Oh, no, the man in Mark says, he didn't do that with me. He just spoke, and I received my sight. The first man digs in his heels. That isn't right, he says. Jesus heals with clay. And if you haven't had that experience, I'm beginning to doubt whether you can really see. Thus originated in the early church the denomination of the Muddites and the Anti-Muddites. Two divisions. This is what happens when we get our eyes on the modes of God's working, off the mo- uh, on the modes of God's working, rather than upon the Lord who works. 
And so that's exactly right. The outward circumstances of our life may differ. We may be entirely different from one another, but our conversion experience, the work of the Holy Spirit, is exactly the same in all of us. There is no different spirit. There's one and only one Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit always works in the same way. Now, what makes the difference in Christians is not because the work of the Spirit isn't singular, but because after He regenerates us, after we become saved, then the Holy Spirit begins to work in us as individuals and our different personalities and so forth. And so the, the, the Spirit will produce in us minor variations in our abilities or skills to do His work. And so that's why you have some people who, who end up being pastors and some who, who become great teachers in the church, others that have a gift of working with children... We have all those kinds of variations, but we don't have any kind of variation at all when it comes to the conversion experience. Now, what this does, I think, when we talk about the Holy Spirit working the same kind of works and all, and that He's a singular spirit, that makes me very suspect about the charismatic movement. Now, I think this is important for us to talk about and to be taught about. I've been a Christian for 45 years, and folks, I have never had the urge to speak in tongues. I've never had the urge to get up before anybody and speak in some kind of unintelligible language. My, my father pastored for 40 years before me, and I never remember my father jumping up and talking in unintelligible language. I've known countless Christians throughout the years, good, godly people, and they never had that kind of experience. I've also read the works of some of the greatest Christians uh, from in, in history from the time of Christ until now and, and the most prolific area of, uh, era of uh, Christian history where the most writing was produced where you have people like Matthew Henry, John Gill, Spurgeon, John Bunyan, John Flavel who wrote a, a masterpiece work on the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works and yet there were none of those men who ever had an experience where they spoke with tongues. And so I wonder, how is it that people who don't have an inkling of the spiritual fortitude and the knowledge that those men had, how is it possible to have a different work of the Holy Spirit? How can they do something that we don't do? Well, I think that if they do do it, then the spirit that's working in them is not the same spirit that's working in us. Now, there was a time when Baptist people would not, and Baptist preachers would not have any trouble at all making a statement like that. Those times have passed. Most Baptist preachers won't say that anymore, and they'll make some kind of allowances for what's going on, even though they'll admit we have no idea what it is. But folks, I believe it's a different spirit. And I think that's why John told us in 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, people can be duped unwillingly, I think, or unwittingly, I should say, and I don't think that... that that spirit, whatever it is, is the same spirit that operates in us. So the Holy Spirit is a person, and he is an indivisible spirit. He is going to work the same work in all of us. Now, let's go next to talk about the Pentecost of the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a day when the, the Holy Spirit began a special ministry in the world. And don't be mis mistaken about this or misunderstand. The Holy Spirit has always been in the world. He, he's not a late comer. But there was a particular day when the Holy Spirit began to work in a very special way, in a very different way. And this is when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and he came to live in the hearts as an abiding presence in the hearts of Christians. Now, as I said, that happened on the day of Pentecost. So what about the Pentecost of the Holy Spirit? 
Well, first I would say that it was a promised event. We go back into the Old Testament, 800 years before uh, the time of Christ, and we find out that there is a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. So there we have a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. But... Not all of Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, the people that are in the charismatic movement will point to this verse in Joel chapter 2, and they'll say that all of this started on the day of Pentecost, and now these things that Joel spoke of are being, is being fulfilled in the church. But we notice here that when Joel, or rather when Peter quoted this scripture on the day of Pentecost, he didn't use that to mean that now all Christians will be able to speak in tongues, all Christians will be able to prophesy, and now every person is going to have some kind of new revelation about Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that? Well, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to do some reading of scripture tonight. Acts chapter 2. And Joel, or rather Peter, I should say, mentions Joel's prophecy. This is when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, and let's look at verse number 14. Acts 2, 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing as but the third hour of the day. Now what he's talking about there is the speaking in tongues that was done in the first part of the chapter. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, I want you to look very closely, beginning at verse number 19, because this proves to us that Joel's prophecy is not yet complete. And it won't be complete until Jesus comes back. Verse number 19. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Listen. Before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what Peter is not saying here is that there are going to be now multiple outpourings of the Holy Spirit where Christians will have all of the sign gifts that are being practiced by charismatics. What Peter simply meant here is that the day of Pentecost was a special manifestation of the Spirit in the same way that Joel prophesied. Now, hold on to Acts 2, too, because we're going to come back to that, that chapter in just a minute. Jesus also promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said after his death and his ascension into heaven that the Comforter would come. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, verse number 18, there's a very interesting verse. You might want to circle that in your Bible because that is one of the proofs that we have that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are all one God. That's the presence of Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of us as Christians. So very plainly, we see here, the the coming of uh, the Holy Spirit on Pentecost was a promised event. 
Now, unfortunately, much of the confusion that exists over the work of the Holy Spirit concerns what did exactly happen on Pentecost and what is the result of what happened on Pentecost. Well, it's very important for you to understand the next statement, and that is Pentecost is not a repeated event. It is not a repeated event. Now, things get a little bit sticky here because what you believe about Pentecost will actually color how you interpret many other scriptures in the Bible. So on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and he empowered the church. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. If you still have your finger there, we want to look at verse number 1, what happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, beginning of verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Now what the Holy Spirit is doing here is that this is an accreditation of the church. And on the day of Pentecost, the church itself, the church as an organization, as a body, was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Jerusalem church was the first church, and they had already been given the great commission by Christ, from Christ. And Christ said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will empower you to carry out this commission. Now, turn back to Acts chapter 1, if you would, please, in verse number 5, where Jesus is speaking, and he talks about what the Holy Spirit's going to do. In verse 5, Acts 1, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So Jesus said, on this particular day, the Holy Spirit will come, and when he does, you will receive the power to become my witnesses. And of course, that's exactly what happened. The day of Pentecost came, and after Pentecost, there was a great change that took place in the disciples. Because no longer are they a group of 120 people that are meeting fearfully in the upper room. Now these are a charged up group of people. They have the power of the Holy Spirit behind them. And if you keep on reading in the book of Acts, you find out that those 120 people grew to possibly more than 20,000 members in the Jerusalem church. And so the Jerusalem church became a mega church in just a few months or at most uh, a couple of years. Now, this happened because of Pentecost. But what I want to show you about this, though, is that nowhere in the Scriptures does it ever tell us that anyone was baptized with the Holy Spirit again. In Acts chapter 11, 
Peter referred to Cornelius and his family that were saved. And he talked about them speaking in tongues. And he recalled what happened at Pentecost. But the most that we could construe from what happened in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 is that God sanctioned the coming of the Gentiles into the church. Now, aside from those two related incidents, incidences, uh, incidents, that's what I want to say, baptism of the Holy Spirit has never, is never mentioned in the scriptures again. There is no baptism with the Holy Spirit. So where do people get the idea that everybody who gets saved is now baptized with the Holy Ghost? The Bible never says that. Now, baptism in the scripture, baptism of the Holy Spirit was for, at most, two reasons. One reason or I should say for one reason at most, two rather, it's to empower the church or reason number two, to admit the Gentiles into the church. There are no other reasons for Holy Spirit baptism. Now to add to that, the Charismatics act as if speaking in tongues was a very common event in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. And so they will tell you that all Christians spoke with tongues after Pentecost. I mean, it was a very common thing. But did you know that there are only three instances in all of the book of Acts where anybody ever spoke with tongues? One was on the day of Pentecost, we just mentioned. The second one was with Cornelius, the admittance of Gentiles into the church. And the third one is in Acts chapter 19. Only three instances of speaking in tongues in all of the book of Acts. Now let's turn to Acts 19 for just a minute because we want to read about that and how this incident happened and why it's different from what we've already spoke about. Acts uh, chapter 19... And I want you to look at verse number 4. Acts 19, verse 4. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, I want you to notice there in those scriptures how they received the gift of tongues. How did they do that? It was when Paul laid hands on them. So we have two instances where the gift came directly from God. That's the empowerment of the church and the admittance of the Gentiles. The third incident is when an apostle laid hands on them. Now I want you to go to Acts chapter 8 for just a minute. And this is the story of where Philip preaches in Samaria. I'm not going to read the whole passage but, but because of time. But I want you to look at verse number 12. Acts 8 verse number 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, notice here, uh, first, that, that there is no evidence at this point of any visible sign gifts. Nothing said about speaking in tongues or any other kind of gifts. Now, look down to verse number 14. Now, when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, verse 17. Then then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, let me ask you something. Why do you suppose that Philip didn't do this in the first place? Why didn't Philip, upon their conversion, lay his hands on them so they could receive what the apostles just gave? You ever think about that? Why didn't he do it? It's because Philip didn't have the power to do it. 
The Philip that we're talking about here is Philip the evangelist. He's not an apostle. He's the evangelist. He's the, one of the first deacons that was chosen in the church. And so he preached to these people. They got saved. But Philip had no power at all to lay hands on them so they could receive these gifts of the Spirit. So what happens is, is that the apostles who are down in Jerusalem, they hear about the conversion. And so they go there in order to lay hands on these people. And they laid hands on them. And you know what happens? Well, actually, the Bible doesn't say they spoke in tongues. It doesn't say it here. I said there's only three instances in Acts where they spoke in tongues. And they may have spoken in tongues here. I don't know. But if they did, the only reason they could is because they had the apostles' hands laid on them. Now, let me ask you something. How many apostles are there today? How many apostles are going around laying hands on people so they can speak with tongues? And the answer to that question is none. Nobody ever had the gift of tongues without the presence of an apostle. And so, folks, there's nobody today who can possibly have the same gifts that were present in the first century. So because Pentecost and baptism with the Holy Spirit is not a repeated event, that's why those great commentators like Matthew Henry, John Gill, John Flavel, Charles Spurgeon, go on and on and on, all the ones that you want to mention, they never were able to speak with tongues. They never had any kind of gift like this. And that's because it does not exist for, for us today. Now, the New Testament then never, did you know this? It never mentions tongues again until you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's the only place it's ever mentioned again. And you know what Paul's doing there? He's speaking about the regulation of tongues because they were misusing the gift. And you know what, what Paul told these people? He relegated the gift of tongues to immature Christians. Not great Christians, not strong Christians. He said the gift of tongues is, if I would have put it easily for you, was for baby Christians. A mature Christian does not need this. And so after 1 Corinthians 14, you never find tongues mentioned in the Bible again. Now, the question would be, if tongues is the evidence of greater spirituality then why in all the rest of the New Testament, which deals extensively with, with the Holy Spirit and how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, have the, how to have the power of the Holy Spirit, why in all the rest of the New Testament does it never mention tongues again? And why right here in Ephesians chapter 3, I spent all of that time talking about that great prayer of Paul in chapter 3. And what did Paul say in that chapter? He said, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Where would there be a better place for Paul to pray for the gifts of the Spirit or to pray for them to speak in tongues? You wouldn't find a better place. He explained all of that how, about how to be filled with the fullness of God and never mentions the gift of tongues. Now, we got something to add on top of that. And that is that the gift of tongues that's practiced today is not even what the Bible calls tongues in the book of Acts. Now, very clearly, in Acts chapter 2, what these people spoke were known languages. If there had been English, Spanish, French, Russian, those kinds of languages at that time, those are exactly the kinds of languages that would have been spoken. These are not unintelligible languages. Acts chapter 2 very clearly shows us that these were languages that people could understand. But you have people running around today speaking in some kind of unintelligible language. And they call it a heavenly language, an angelic language. But I would remind you of this also, that any time you ever saw an angel speak in the scriptures, what did he speak? A language that people could understand. God's angels spoke to people very clearly in a language they could understand. There is no such thing as an angelic language. You can't prove it by the scripture because it's not there. 
Now, it's very important here for you to understand Pentecost and the Holy Spirit or you'll be mixed up about how the Holy Spirit works. Now, sadly, much of Christianity is mixed up about how the Holy Spirit works. Now, let's talk thirdly about the power of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit have the power to do? Well, he's God. So first we would say, you because know, he has the power to do all things because he's God. But let's look at what Paul's talking about, the, the area of, of, of power that's most pertinent to Paul's argument here. Look at verse number four again. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Now, the last part of the verse is where I want to finish. One hope of your calling. So what does the Holy Spirit have the power to do? Well, first of all, he has the power to convict of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who makes you realize that you are a sinner. Now, lots of people know that they're sinners. You can talk to people and tell them they're a sinner, and many times people admit, yeah, I'm a sinner, I know that, but it doesn't mean anything to them. I mean, they're, they're not led to do anything about it. They agree with you, but they, they don't have any compulsion over their sin to do anything about it. Sin doesn't bother them. And so they can go and they can drink and, and run around, carouse, do all the things that the world do, does. It doesn't bother them because they don't have any sense that sin is anything but what I like to do. Sin is fun. But what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you? That's when he begins to convict the heart. He speaks to the heart and he brings deep conviction of your sin. And what he does is he shows the person the consequence of sin. And so for the first time in a person's life, when the Holy Spirit gets hold of him, he realizes that there are dire consequences to sin. And now he becomes very concerned about it. Now, folks, that is the singular work of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing external in the world that will ever produce that in a person. There's nothing internal in a person that will ever conjure it up. It has to come from the Holy Spirit, and it comes from no other place. Because that's his power, and that's his work. He convicts of sin. The second thing that he does is he regenerates the sinner. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. Now, I've been over this a lot in the past few months. So let me just briefly say to you that the Bible teaches that we are dead in trespasses and sin. A sinner who is dead spiritually cannot respond spiritually unless God first regenerates him. Now, regeneration is the new birth. It's the same thing. And what it means is to be made alive spiritually. That's what we discussed uh, back in the book of John, chapter 11. We used the example of Lazarus and how Jesus raised him from the dead. So the Holy Spirit regenerates the person so that he can repent of his sins, then place his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, logically, regeneration comes first. That's the logical conclusion. It must come first because the sinner is dead, and before he can believe, he must be brought to life. But chronologically... Regeneration, repentance, and faith all occur at the same time. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who has the power to regenerate people. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that when the Holy Spirit works, it's all His work. There is no such thing as you having a part of your salvation and God having a part of your salvation. It's all God's work. The faith that you have comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God says, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wants. And what he means is the Holy Spirit works where he wants. There are no restrictions on the Holy Spirit. And he has the power to do exactly what he wants to accomplish. Now, thirdly, finally, 
He empowers the saved. Now, here we are. We've come right back full circle to where we started. The reason, folks, that we have a church in the first place is because the Holy Spirit has caused it. There's nothing that we do in this church without the power and the energy of the Holy Spirit. There's not one godly work that will ever be done unless the Holy Spirit is in control and working through us. Our prayers are worthless. Our time that we spend here listening to preaching God's Word is worthless. Witnessing is worthless unless the Holy Spirit is there to work through it. There's nobody who will ever get saved without the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no work of the church that will ever get done unless God's Spirit is behind it all. Now, let me finish with this statement on your listening sheet. And folks, uh, if you've learned nothing at all from my preaching in the last four years, I know that you've learned this one. You, need, you got this one. The Holy Spirit enables us to glorify Jesus Christ. Now, here's a very important point, because the Holy Spirit does not enable us to glorify the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons why I don't believe in the charismatic movement, because the Holy Spirit did not come to glorify himself. He came to glorify Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body. That's Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus Christ, might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This is why Paul wrote that fourth verse. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling. Folks, he is the one and only Holy Spirit. And it's his job to magnify Jesus Christ. And that's what we do as we follow the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. And we thank you uh, for the opportunity to expound your word tonight. Lord, I hope that it's been clear and that your spirit would make it clear. And this is, of course, one of the great works of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word. Speak to hearts tonight, Lord. And if there's questions, will they be asked? And we ask the Uh, We would have opportunity to speak to people if they're confused about anything. But, Lord, we just want you to reveal yourself to us. And as we've just taught tonight, the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what we want to do. Blessing this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.